Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum, this is Abdurrahman Murphy, and you're listening to the newest Heartwork series, Finding Meaning in Trial. In this series, we'll be exploring an upcoming publication that I'm working on, translating and commenting on the beautiful short text of Al-Iz bin Abd salam called The Benefits of Trials. In this series, we'll be exploring some of the meanings and some of the benefits of trials in our lives as given to us by Al-Iz bin Abd salam He gives us some of the good things that we seek in life that can only come from the bad moments that we experience in life. I look forward to joining you on this series, inshallah, and having you with us. And as always, if you benefit from our work, please consider donating and becoming a sustainer at rootsdfw.org slash sustain. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome home. It's good to see you. Alhamdulillah. I, uh, admittedly, I'm wearing a, a wool thobe and it's not cold yet. It'll be cold tomorrow, inshallah. I'm anticipating the cold. Um, I hope everyone's doing well, inshallah, and I hope, uh, you know, as well as you can, obviously, given everything that we're seeing day in and day out. Um, I wanted to share something. I was, I was reading last night and listening to some stuff, just kind of unwinding, uh, as I was cleaning up the house a little bit. And I, I heard a narration that I think it helped me. And it's a narration that I think to some degree, uh, you know, if you've been Muslim for a while, you may have heard it mentioned um, in like a khutbah or in a halaqa or a dars somewhere. Um, and it's the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, in Sahih Muslim, where Abu Huraira, he narrates that the Prophet said, Bada al-Islam ghariban that the Prophet ﷺ, he said that Islam, when it came, when it you know, was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, it began as something that was strange. And then he said, it will return just like it began as something strange. And so he said, Fatuba al He said, Glad tidings to those people who are strange. And the reason why I was listening to Hadith and it was like almost as if it was the first time I ever heard it. And I think the reason why, subhanAllah, is because one of the common emotions that a lot of people have communicated or have uh, spoken about to some degree, you know, for a while, but especially given the events of the past few weeks, I think everybody uh, um, can agree that there are moments and times where you feel like nobody around you understands or gets what's going on or how it feels uh, to be Muslim and that that frustration or that invisible feeling, the feeling of being invisible uh, or being discarded can be something that can be uh, really difficult and can actually like weigh you down, can make you feel 
uh, insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And so hearing this hadith, when I thought about it, it just gave me a smile and it made me sort of, you know, happy in a way that this feeling of being someone who um, feels like is kind of like on the outside and is kind of strange, you know, when you try to have conversations about certain things. And of course, when it comes to, you know, the situation in Gaza, this is something that people can relate to. But even just beyond that. If you're like a Muslim woman and you dress a certain way, right, hijab, or even maybe if you don't wear hijab yet, but you dress modestly and you feel like you're an outcast, right? You're in the summer in Dallas, Texas, and you're not wearing next to nothing. And you're like, man, I feel weird. Or, you know, when you go to a restaurant and they ask you, do you guys want the drink menu? And you're like, no, no, thanks. And they're like, are you sure? Just call an Uber. And you're like, no, no, it's not that. You're like, I have a lot of family that drive Uber. It's not that, right? <laughs> um, the feeling of being otherized can be a very disheartening feeling. And the Prophet ﷺ, in his genius, you know, He's just a mercy in every way. In his genius, ﷺ, as he's speaking to people that in his life were otherized, meaning what? They were made to feel like they were not normal, right? Down to, the, like, down to the, the detail. I mean, you had some companions that were made fun of because they used to clean themselves after using the bathroom. And the, the kuffar would be like, your prophet teaches you how to clean yourself? And they would try to like in a mocking tone, in a way to make him feel like, that's so weird. What kind of religion does that? Or you have the Prophet ﷺ himself, you know, kissing his grandchildren, Al-Hasan wal Hussein, radiallahu anhuma, kissing these young boys to show his love and affection for them. And another companion is shocked by this, and he says, Ya Rasulullah, you kiss your you kiss your boys? You kiss your sons? And the Prophet ﷺ, he responds by saying, Yes. You know, I do. And the man says, I had 10 sons and I've never kissed one of them ever in my life. And he was trying to show again like this manliness. And the Prophet ﷺ responded beautifully. He said, what can I do if Allah has not placed mercy in your heart? What can I do for you? So this idea of being the other is something that Islam did not run away from. In fact, as a Muslim... The Prophet ﷺ teaches us by this hadith and other examples that it's not only okay, but for the person that can remain confident and faithful and reliant upon Allah, despite being different, that person, the Prophet ﷺ says, Good news. I can't even tell you what's waiting for you. One of my earlier teachers, he said very beautifully, he said that being a Muslim in some environments will feel like you are an ice cube that is living inside of an oven that is turned on. And he says that being a Muslim in that state, it will feel like everything around you is causing you to melt. And my teacher said that you are that ice cube. You know, and, and, and he was, I think, I think in the time... My shaykh was making an analogy to the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said, there will come a time when holding on to my sunnah will be like holding on to a hot coal in your hand. So my teacher was saying like, if you can be the ice cube in the oven and not melt, meaning if you can be a Muslim and own that identity and be from the ghuraba, from somebody that just takes it, you know, you just deal with it. Okay, khalas. You know, you go, you go to, I was going to say you go to Starbucks, but no, no. You go to some like coffee shop and they ask for your name. Like, what do you choose? It, it's down to the micro details. Like, what do you choose? I, look, none of you, very few people in this room can argue that they had harder times growing up during attendance than me. My name is Abdurrahman. Do you understand? The, the, the substitute teacher didn't even try. There was just a pause, a silence, Right? And they would just be like, Murphy, right? Which, by the way, I don't like when people call my last name because I feel like you're avoiding the Muslim 
part of my name. So Abdurrahman. And so my whole life, people are like, why don't you just go by Abe? Because that's not my name. Why don't you go by something else? And eventually, you know, there's the people that are really, really, you know, uh, courageous. And they say, I'm just going to call you this. And you have to correct them and say, no, 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 I'm okay being different. I'm okay being different. Like, I like it. I, I actually, this is where I'm comfortable, right? And so I wanted to share this with you because I know if I've been feeling it, then definitely I'm not the only person. You know, the thoughts of like praying, for example, the thoughts of like, are you going to pray in public? Are you going to be a person that performs your salah? Are you going to continue to do the things that you know make you Muslim? and observably Muslim, right? Especially as time gets, as it gets more and more uh, interesting. You know, these are the questions. But I want you to remember these hadith, inshallah, that the Prophet says, if you can maintain onto your Muslim identity, and you can be proud of your Muslim identity, and you can show people with your, with your faith and your manners and your akhlaq what being Muslim is about, fatuba lil ghurba. Good news. You're going to be blessed, inshallah, inshallah. Okay, uh, let's continue, inshallah. We've been reading this book together, and I've been sharing some, some notes from the translation that I'm working on. The book is called The Benefits of Trials. And uh, we talked about this last session, inaba. Inaba, which means to turn back to Allah or returning to Allah. And we gave a few different categories of what it means to return to Allah. There were four things, four questions that everybody has to ask themselves. So again, the book is about what? Why do bad things happen? Right? Why do bad things happen? If, if bad things happen in my life, right? And this is the Muslim answer, subhanAllah. Muslims have two, there's two choices for this and Muslims, we choose one of them. In life, Bad things will happen. You can either decide that they have meaning or they don't have meaning. The general public, like society, without God, without religion, they want you to believe that what? Things that happen to you don't have meaning. They're just destructive and almost, you know, dare I say, like a, a mockery of your existence. When bad things happen, it just is bad. But Muslims, because of the Quran, because of what Allah told us and what the Prophet ﷺ taught us, we understand that these bad things, they happen, but they have meaning. They have purpose. There's something there. So Al-Izbin Abdul Salam, he writes a book. And he says, let me give you 17 things that are the meanings and the purposes of why these bad things are happening. Because maybe then, if you're going through a tough time in your life, you'll be able to flip through this book and you'll be able to find something and understand that maybe this particular reason, not all of them, but maybe this one, is the reason why this is happening to me. So we talked so far about getting to know Allah, making, uh, uh, getting to know yourself, right? Realizing what sincerity with Allah is, al-ikhlas. Sometimes you can only be sincere once you're tested. So the one that we talked about last week was inaba. He says, al-inaba ilallahi ta'ala wal-iqbalu alayhi. That when you are tested with a tough time, naturally you return back to Allah, because you want to figure it out. You want to reset. And you want to be able to get the orientation right. You want to set things right. Because you, you fear that maybe this bad thing that's happening is because of something that I did, or maybe I grew too distant away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and now I realize that that distance is actually affecting me. And so he says that inaba is returning to Allah. And we said there are four questions. I'm just doing a little review. There are four questions that a person has to ask if they want to return to Allah. Number one is, do I really love Allah in the first place? Because a person will only return to somebody they love. Like, why do kids run back to their parents? Because they love their parents. And even if they're in trouble, right, you run back to the one that you love. So if you love somebody, you're going to run back to them. So the first question, if, I'm, if I want to know, like, do I, am I munib? Am I going to run back to Allah? Or if I find myself in trials, this is an uncomfortable question. Let's say I find myself being tested, but I'm not running anywhere. I'm not running back to Allah. I'm not making more dua. I'm not making more istighfar. I'm not trying to like figure it out with my iman. Then I have to ask myself, where is my love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That's number one. Number two, 
Do I submit to Allah? Do I submit to the test? Do I submit to how the test is happening and why it's happening? These are all questions. Or do I challenge and push back on these things? Because sometimes when the test happens, we can submit to the test, but then we are like, you know what, but the timing is really bad. Or we'll say, you know what, the test and the timing, but I don't like how Allah tested me. But part of being a person that goes back to Allah is that you submit to all of it. All right, it doesn't matter what or how or when. I am, oh Allah, I'm submitting to you. Whatever you decide for me, oh Allah, I'm accepting this. I'm taking this. The third question that you ask yourself is, do I turn to Allah as a result of the test or do I turn away from Allah? So when something happens that I don't like, do I become closer or further away? You know, everyone asks me, like, how do I know a test is not a punishment? That's a big question. Ibn al-Qayyim, he answers this. Ibn al-Qayyim, he says, the way you know a test is a punishment or not is actually not the test, but it's how you behave after the test. If the test somehow, some way pushed you toward Allah, then the test was actually something good. It was a good test and you passed. But if somehow, some way, the test happens and you actually notice yourself not praying as much, right? Not calling upon Allah as much. Just distancing yourself. No Quran, no this, no that. Just falling away. Becoming angry, resentful with Allah. Then that test was a test that you unfortunately, or I, let's, I'll put me here. I failed. And as a result of me failing that, it actually became a punishment. And so this is why... You know, we were talking on Saturday. We had an event here about gratitude. And one of the questions I asked the audience was, imagine a time when somebody had every reason to be angry, but they were grateful. And one of the doctors in the room, he was sitting right there. Sorry, I know I was pointing right there. He's not here anymore. He was sitting right in the middle. And he says, you know, I'm a hospitalist and I round on patients. And he goes, there is one thing that I will never, ever understand but it always shocks me every time. And he said, it is when I'm rounding on a patient that is nearing their end. They've gone through everything possible, all treatment, everything. And he says, they have been given the, pro the word from the doctors, like the proclamation, you're not going to make it. We can't do anything else for you. You should start hospice or comfort care. And he says, and that person, when they realize or they come to that realization that their life is ending and they don't know when but soon he says you would expect them to be angry because they feel like these things are being taken away from me and why me and what happened but he goes time and time again and he goes it doesn't matter about religion he said i've seen muslims do it i've seen non-muslims do it i've seen everybody do it. he goes there is something that opens in the heart of this person that's found out that they're no longer going to be here to the length that they thought and he said they become so soft and so merciful and gracious and they're better with their families and they're better with their friends and they're calling people and he said he goes it, it's a gratitude that i can't understand obviously because none of us have been in that position perhaps but maybe you've seen it and so submitting and turning to allah is part of the equation now it's a hard part i'm sitting here like it's easy Oh, something bad happens? Just turn to Allah. Smile. Be happy. But subhanAllah, our religion gives us so much promise about those who turn to Allah. That Allah Ta'ala, whoever places their trust in Him, they will find that He will be enough for them. He'll take, he'll take care of them. Allah says, He'll provide for them from places they never thought that they could imagine. These are promises that Allah gives us so that we don't have to make the decision. When something bad happens, we trust Allah. Now here's the, here's the, 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 the kicker, right? Are you guys with me still? I know I'm on this like long monologue, but... Alright, here's the kicker. Allah, and think about this. I need everyone to open up their memories right now. Think about a time when you were tested and you got upset. And... Despite your being upset, everything in the long run ended up working out just fine. How do you feel 
after wasting all that energy, being upset and angry and resentful and just furious. And then when the solution happens and it becomes manifest and you're like, oh man, okay, how do you feel? Feel what? Yeah, thank you. There's kids here. So there you feel S-T-U-P-I-D. All right, everybody? No, it's okay. It's okay. You're good. My kids are always like, don't do that. My, ki- my son the other day said, Baba, don't say the F word. I was like, whoa. I was like, me? I don't say that. What are you talking about? So I like got scared. I was like, I looked at my wife. I was like, and I go, and, I was, and then I was afraid. I'm going to ask him? No, man. Then he's going to, he's in Islamic school. He definitely knows what it is. I'm joking, right? So, so I said, what's the F word? And he goes, you said freaking. I said, oh my God. I said, Baba, if that to you is the F word, alhamdulillah wa shukrullah. Right? So yeah, you feel like, you feel dumb. Like you're like, why, why? Why did I waste all that time? Why? You know, and there's probably nothing that teaches you this lesson more than the airline industry. <laughs> you miss a flight and you get so upset. And then like somehow, some way, you either catch it or there's another one or somehow, some way it works out. And then you get to your destination. You get there and you're like, okay, why was I so upset for eight hours? Like, I just burned so much energy. None of my family's talking to each other. We all got so angry at each other. Oh, you're, we were late because of you, not because of you, because of you. No, the real problem is you were late because you didn't submit to the plan that Allah gave you. Now, this doesn't mean you don't try, right? The Prophet said, tie your camel and then trust. But once you've tied your camel... You can only do so much. And, 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 and you know, this is where Ibn Asa'illah, he says, He says, don't overplan. And then he says, why would you concern yourself with so much when Allah, who is better than you, has already taken care of it for you? Just do your part. You know, Allah in the Quran, not once, and the Prophet, in the hadith, not once, has ever commanded anybody to take care of everything on their own. You've never found this in the Quran. The only thing Allah has commanded for you to do is what? Do your part. Right? Allah said, your job is to do what you can. Even with da'wah, even with teaching Islam. The Prophet was told what? Innaka la tahdi man ahbabta. You can't convert people that you love, like you don't have that power. The Prophet ﷺ, one of the wisdoms, it's very painful when you read the seerah, the passing of his uncle, Abu Talib, as a non-Muslim. And not just a non-Muslim, but he actually rejected Islam. And it, it caused the Prophet ﷺ so much grief, so much tears. And a, a, a casual read of the seerah, someone might ask like, why didn't Allah just let Abu Talib convert? Why not? But there was a lesson there, subhanAllah. And some of the scholars of Sirah, they write this. They say, perhaps in the passing of the uncle of the Prophet, without Islam, there was a lesson, not only for us, but for him, but all of us, that you cannot control everything. And I'm only seeing right now in this room, the people that I can tell are a little bit older, nodding their heads. Because this is also a problem that afflicts young people. When you're younger, you think that you control everything. You're told these general statements like, believe it and you can achieve it. <laughs> I will tell you something, okay? I believe that I can be in the NBA. I could almost say, wallahi, I will not achieve that belief. Right? So as Muslims, we say, believe it, ask Allah, do your part, and if he wills, you will achieve it. And that's it. And you know what this does? I'll tell you what this does. It saves us from the anxiety. I'm not using these terms clinically. I'm using them socially. The anxiety and the depressive states of not accomplishing something we wanted. Because at the end of something that we wanted that we didn't get, what do we say? وَإِذَا أَصَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَالُوا إِنَّ لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّ إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ عَلَى كُلِّ حَالٍ قَدَّرَ اللَّهُ مَا شَاءَ That's what we say. And Muslims walk away from the most, and I say this very, very specifically, we walk away from the most tragic of situations pleased with Allah. 
these people that are having their houses destroyed and children killed and families killed and they're saying with tears hasbunallah wa ni'mal wakil that that is that is islam and so inaba is turning to allah submitting to him and in the process of turning to him so it's do you love allah do you submit to his plan do you turn towards him or away from him and then the last step and this is hard do you have the capacity to turn away from everybody else because sometimes we're like hanging on to two things. But if you really, really want to turn to Allah, you have to let go of one side. You're like, okay, I, I trust you, Allah, but I also, just in case it doesn't work, <laughs> this is where the istikhara, the famous hopeless romantic istikhara dua comes from. Oh Allah, if he or she is good for me, then let me marry them, ya Allah. And oh Allah, if he or she is not good for me, Oh Allah, make them good for me. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't hold on to Allah and then also like, do you get the point? You know, it's like, thank, you know, uh, I'm not going to say Thanksgiving, but turkey, turkey, turkey dinner day is coming up, right? Because there's problems with Thanksgiving and we should be sensitive. We should even be even more sensitive to it now that we understand what it's like to be an indigenous people that gets destroyed. But there is a day coming where people get together and cook with their families. National holiday. At some point when you're baking something, you do everything and then you do what? Put it in the oven, close the door. You just have to. If you try to bake that thing with your hand in the oven, it's going to hurt. Life is full of metaphors. You have to just send them off. If you're a parent with children, at some point, and this happens every stage of childhood, like... You drop them off at kindergarten. You know, my wife is an Islamic school vice principal, and she says on the first day of school, the people that are crying the most are not the kindergartners. It's the parents of the kindergartners. She goes, they drop them off, and the teachers are like trained professionals. They're like, quick, and they like cover the eyes of the kid. Like it's Eid al-Adha. <laughs> and they like grab them into the room, and they're like, oh, look, colors, painting. And the kid is out of sight, out of mind. Where am I? They don't even understand time. You know, my daughter, when I'm like, how long do you want to stay? She wants to stay very long. She's like, seven minutes, Baba. I'm like, great. They don't get time. You know who's crying? The parents around the corner, sobbing. Can you guys put a camera in there with a link? I can look at it. My wife's like, go home. By day three, they're like, can you guys keep them over the weekend too? Like, is there an option for that? And then it happens. You get older and then your kid has to go on a you know, play on their own sports teams, and then they maybe get on a plane by themselves, sleep over at their cousin's house. I don't know, like all these steps. You have to let go. Life is about letting go. You take an exam in school. You submit a project for work. You hit that button. You submit it, and then you have to let go. So turning to Allah does not mean that you can also try to keep your hand in the situation. And Inaba is a person that leaves it up to Allah. And then the other side of the meaning of inaba that I'll share with you here is inaba also carries the meaning of doing things quickly. You know, there's nothing, subhanAllah, I'll share this with you. There's nothing praiseworthy about being forced into returning to something. That's like, it's like running into a dead end at every street and then you're like, okay, I have to go back. The thing that's really remarkable is when you realize that you have to turn around before you run into the dead end. It's the person who realizes that, you know what, I have to go back to Allah before they run into X, X, all, every single door is crossed, crossed, locked, locked. And then they're like, okay, you know what, I might as well go back to Allah. So Inaba here, the scholars write, Ibn Qayyim, he continues, and he says, it means to, number one, you do those four questions. You go back to Allah. He says, don't delay. Don't delay. Don't promise yourself you'll come back to Allah someday. At one point. Sometime. Right? The prophets of Allah were all given wahi in a, in a younger to middle age of their life. They weren't given wahi as elder, elder, elder people after they had already lived their lives. The, the, the Sahaba of the Prophet ﷺ, the majority of them at some point 
were young people because those people decided they made a commitment. You know, Mus'ab ibn Umar, oh my goodness. If you want a story of, of running back to Allah, literally Mus'ab ibn Umar, literally, he was the wealthiest kid in Mecca. And he learns about the Prophet and he goes to the house of Arqam, Dar al-Arqam, because that's where the Prophet used to teach. And he listens to the Prophet and he falls in love. This is exactly what my soul is, is craving. And so he accepts Islam and the Prophet tells him, you know what, don't, don't, don't be public yet with this. Because the Prophet knows that he, has, he comes from a family, especially his mother, is like one of the proclaimed enemies of the Prophet So he tells Mus'ab, like, don't, I need you to hide this Islam for a while. Because I don't want you to get in trouble. And Mus'ab ultimately, whether, some narrations say that he, 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 he mentioned something to some people, and some say that people saw him go to the, the house of Arqam. Either way, it was found out. And he gets locked in his house, shackled, okay, and he's like the wealthiest kid. They used to say about Mus'ab that you could smell him from like a mile away because his perfume was so strong, in a good way. And they used to say that his clothing, he had so much money, he never wore the same thing twice. He had so much clothing that his cloth would drag behind him. You guys know, you guys ever heard the hadith about anything that's below the ankles is in the fire? You guys ever heard that before? You guys ever seen men dressed like this? They have their shin showing, okay? It's because of that hadith. The hadith says that anything, anyone that wears clothing below their ankles, the Prophet said, it's in the fire. Abu Bakr was scared because he was really skinny, and he used to wear what's called an izar, and it used to drag below his ankles. He said, Ya Rasulullah, what if I can't like, help it? I'm skinny, right? What an amazing problem to have. I'm skinny, I'm too skinny. And then Abu ba- the Prophet said, no, not you, Abu Bakr, because you're not doing it out of arrogance. Because they used to, that's why Mus'ab used to drag it behind him out of arrogance. Like, I have so much money, I don't even need to wear this again. I can wear it, you know how NBA players, they wear it sometimes a new pair of shoes every game? It's the same thing, Qiyasan, right? Like, same, same idea. So this was Mus'ab. He gets jailed in his house, he escapes, he goes on the first migration to Abyssinia. The Muslims are told that the Muslims are safe. They come back, he gets locked up again. Finally, and this, I'm telling the story very short because I want to explain something. Finally, he gets to the point where he's like, you know what? I'm going to be a Muslim and I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. And I'm going to, we're going to Medina and I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to be a prisoner in my own house because of what I believe. So he's able to get out of his shackles. And when the guard, the security guard that his mother paid, his mother was his own enemy now. When he came at him, he said, I swear to God, if you try to imprison me again, I'm going to take your own sword and I'm going to kill you with it. He goes, let me go. So his uncle and his mother, they eventually have this like emotional conversation and they basically say, okay, you want to go? Go, but you're not part of our family anymore. Excommunication, you're done. Mosab says, if that's what you, he goes, if that's what you're going to do, I'm not doing that, but if that's what you're saying, I can't control you. He's leaving the house. I want you to think of this. He's leaving the house. And his uncle goes, where are you going? And he goes, I'm leaving. I thought we just decided. He goes, no, you can leave. But the clothes you're wearing, we bought those. Those are ours. How petty. So Musab says, fine. He takes off his clothes and he has nothing but something to cover his waist. And he walks out of the house in Mecca completely with nothing. You know how they say with the clothes on my back? He had nothing on his back. But he went to Allah. He decided, and, and you read stories like that and you sit there embarrassed that I, tr- I have trouble waking up for Fajr? I have trouble like going back to Allah when he's given me everything? Mus'ab is running to Allah having nothing. And here I have everything and I have trouble? You feel embarrassed. Right? May Allah Ta'ala give us strength to go back to Him with quickness. To do the right thing, not because of force, but because we want to. You know, the early companions had every reason not to. They had every reason not to. They could have said, Ya Rasulullah, it's too tough. They're, they're, they're torturing us. 
And they still, despite that, now Allah and the messenger are not asking us to be tortured. But the question still remains is that despite the, the torture and the harassment that they experienced, we still need to figure out a way to find and take inspiration from their courage and their commitment to Allah. So he says, number one, to be quick with it. Number two, prioritize Allah. Pick Allah when you still have other choices. Don't pick him when you don't have choices left. How do you like to be when you've only been chosen when everyone's already tried something else? And no one here likes being the last pick, right? If you're picking teams for basketball, no one here likes being the last one. I don't even know what that's like, subhanAllah, <laughs> right? No one likes it. Oh, yeah, I guess we'll take him. Can you imagine? I've only picked Allah when? When he's the last pick in my life, when nothing else works out, when everything else. No. Pick Allah before you've ex exhausted everything else. Wake up and realize that I keep making the wrong choice. I keep making the wrong decision. Let me pick Allah first. And after I pick Allah, and after I commit myself to him, then whatever pleases Allah, I'll move forward with it. It's like when you're looking for a, a job. Don't even, you know, a lot of people are tempted because they apply for jobs with companies that are not good, right? And it's like, but what even got you to the point where you applied for that? Maybe you missed a step. Like, why apply at Anheuser-Busch? Why apply at DraftKings? Why apply at Lockheed Martin? Why apply at these places? Because I skipped a step. I should have first run the filter. The filter on my application is not on the website to send my resume. The filter is in my heart. Is Allah going to be pleased with me? A lot of people go to movies and they, oh, so much haram stuff in it. Man, filter that stuff before you go. Think about it before you go. Don't let your eyes testify because you didn't want to even think about it, right? So he says, prioritize Allah. And he says, if a servant does this, he will find himself turning back to Allah at every moment and doing what Allah loves. May Allah Ta'ala make us amongst those. May Allah Ta'ala make us amongst those who turn back to him willingly, with love and with urgency, Ya Rab, Ya Rab. Okay, the... Uh, um, the next, and I'll share with you something, and I, I think I shared this last week, but I want to share with you. If you get in the habit of going to Allah regularly, when you have options, then subhanAllah, the hadith the Prophet says that when you don't have options, Allah forgives you. So Abu Qatada, he narrated that the Prophet one time, so a group of people showed up to I just imagine this makes me laugh. A group of people showed up to the Prophet ﷺ right after sunrise. And they were like, Ya Rasulullah, we didn't make it. We missed Fajr. So the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Innahu laysa fin nawm at-tafrit. He says, Innama at-tafrit fil yaqdati fa'idha nasiya ahadukum salatan aw nama anha fal yusalliha idha dhakaraha. He said, because they, they felt bad. They were like, Ya Rasulullah, we missed it. Like, we're, we're doomed. He said, no. And the context is, you guys are regulars. You pray Fajr normally. He said, At-Tafriyat, which translate here is like, neglect, neglect, uh, uh, neglectfully missing something. Neglect. He said, it's only when you're awake. Awake or when you do it on purpose. But he says, if a person has a normal habit of doing something, and then they can't do it for some reason, whether they even fell asleep or whether they were unable to do it out of circumstance. He says that, let him pray as soon as he remembers or she pray as soon as she remembers. This means that subhanAllah, if you get in the habit of making the right choices, when you do slip out of some earnest, sincere mistake, the Prophet Sallallahu here is saying, it won't even count on your shoulders. Nothing will show up. But in order to get that privilege, you have to be someone who at least regularly tries. It's the regular effort that gives you that, that privilege, that perk. But if a person doesn't regularly try, they can't just, you know what I mean? Hit the snooze button and say, oh, if I wake up, I'll wake up. That's not how that works. So that's part of inaba. Now, the fifth benefit of, tri of trial and supplication, 
or of trial and tribulation is supplication. He says, And he says that a person begins to supplicate to Allah when they're tested. And we mentioned this last week a little bit. That when a person gets tested, they start to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sincerely. Now, one of the greatest examples of this is the, the moment in the life of the Prophet ﷺ known as the expedition of Ta'if. The Prophet ﷺ in Mecca knows that he is not able to build a home here. And so he is looking for other options. He goes to Ta'if and he spends a good amount of time with some of the people in Ta'if, the leaders there, three brothers. And at the end of his time, he tries to propose that, you know what, I have a few people that follow me that worship Allah alone. And he says that, can they come and can they, we all live in this area together in Ta'if. And they, subhanAllah, they reject him in a way that was so low and so petty. And the story is a long one, but I don't want to focus on the long story. I want to focus on what the Prophet ﷺ did. So as he's leaving Ta'if, and as he's rejected from them, they push him away, and they actually tell everybody in the city to line up along the exit of the city and to pick up a rock as big and as sharp as they could find and to throw it at the Prophet ﷺ. And they're throwing it at him, Salam. And he's bleeding profusely. All these rocks are hitting him. And he's bleeding profusely, profusely. He's blood coming from his head. It's hitting his sandals. Just bruised and bloody. And finally, he, وسلم, he gets a little bit outside the city to where he can sit down. And he can rest and relax and catch his breath. And he makes a dua called Dua al-Mustada'afin. Which has been captured for us. And has been narrated to us. And I want to read this dua to you. And I want you to think about the words of the Prophet ﷺ here. So this is like one of the hardest things that he's gone through. In fact, when Aisha anha later on in their life, after Uhud, the battle of Uhud, which the Muslims struggled in. She said, Ya Rasulullah, was the battle of Uhud the hardest day of your life? He lost his uncle Hamza. He lost Mus'ab, that young man that I just told you about died in, in Uhud. Aisha, because she was younger, she said, was this the harder day, hardest day of your life? And the Prophet said, no, the hardest day of my life was the day of Ta'if. That was the hardest day of my life. The dua begins, Allahumma ilayka ashku du'fa kuwati wa qillata hilati wa hawani ala nasi The first thing he does when he's been tested, now I want you to understand, think about his emotional state right now. He doesn't know if he has any place to go in Mecca. In fact, I mean, he knows he has no place to go in Mecca. He tries to go to Ta'if, he gets rejected. He doesn't have any place to go, and people are relying upon him to find safety and shelter. So he's quite literally sitting there, unsure of what the future is going to hold for him. And he opens his hands to Allah, and he says, إِلَيْكَ أَشْكُوا Oh Allah, I complain to you, Allah, about my weakness. And he says, the lack of resources that I have. And the way that people, these people don't think well of me. He's venting to Allah. And he's complaining to Allah. Ya Arhamar Rahimina, Anta Arhamu Arwahimina, Anta Rabbi, Anta Rabbul Mustadafina, or Anta Rabbi. He says, oh, the one who is the most merciful of everyone that has mercy. You are the most merciful. You are my Lord and you are the Lord of all of those who are weak and oppressed. He says, oh Allah, who are you going to entrust me to? Who's going to be the one in charge of my affairs? Who's going to be the one that gives me passage or not? He says, is it to a stranger who will mistreat me or an enemy that will attack me? And then he says this beautiful line, and this is what I wanted to kind of focus on. He says, In lam yakum bika ghadibun alayya fala ubali. Oh Allah, 
as long as you're not upset with me, then nothing matters. None of this difficulty matters in my life. He says, He says, rather, O Allah, your favor and your grace is the broadest thing that I have in my life. I can't rely on people, but I can rely on you. And he makes, he continues to make dua. There's a few more lines, but I wanted to focus on this point. That when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested the Prophet it's almost like that test opened up his heart to making dua. In a way, and this dua has been canonized, it's been memorialized. It's almost as if to say that what? If this difficulty did not happen, this dua would not have happened. And we have this beautiful dua here now preserved for us. Why? Because of the tribulation that he was put through. Because of the years in Mecca and the days in Ta'if, we have this moment. Think to yourself and be honest. How much dua would you make if you got everything you wanted in life? Be honest. Many of us, the answer is embarrassingly low. How much dua, how much prayer would we offer? How much supplication would we offer to Allah if we got everything we wanted the way we wanted it, when we wanted it? The answer is, we're almost like, what would we make dua for then? <laughs> right? Because we've been taught that dua is something you only do when you are in a difficult spot. And even though that is true, you make dua to Allah when you are tested, then we have to admit something. Is it not the case that tests have a purpose and have meaning? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. There's a couple lines from Ibn Atta'illah that I want to share with you about making dua. Number one is realize that dua is an invitation from Allah. Right? There are some nights where you don't feel like making dua, you're not inspired, and there are some nights where you are, true or false. Some moments where you're not necessarily like compelled to make dua, and there are some moments where you find your heart like, yes, I want to make dua. So Ibn Atta'illah says, When you find that your tongue has been, and he uses the word like unlocked, freed. When you find that your tongue has been loosened to make a request, Realize, don't just think this is some accident. Realize Allah has placed that inspiration in your chest, in your heart, so that you might ask Him. You see, dua is not the first step of dua. Dua is actually the second step. The first step is that Allah places your heart in a position to yearn to make dua. And the second step is that you open your hands. A lot of times we see dua as this is the first step. No, you are responding to a call. Allah Ta'ala says what? Call upon me, I will answer you. But Ibn Atta'illah says even the idea to make dua is something that you only get because Allah placed it in your heart. And proof of that is that some nights you make dua and some nights you don't. So actually, one of the du'as we should make, I know I'm saying this word a lot. We should have a du'a counter right here. One of the du'as we should make is what? Oh Allah, allow me to make du'a to you. Don't restrict me from making du'a to you. Allow my tongue and my heart to be open to calling upon you. Because if I don't feel that feeling, I'm going to be deprived of this beautiful conversation of opening up to you. And dua, by the way, I'll share with you. Dua, by the way, is not a formal, scientific, technical thing. Dua is like the freest of the freestyle. You're allowed to speak to Allah and say things that are not prescribed or ritual. No, it is you opening up. If you want to learn an example of this, look at the dua of Zakariyah. Zakariya is asking for a child and he doesn't say things like very like, you know, <laughs> Anatomically, oh Allah, grant us a child, perhaps a boy if you would like. No. He says, oh Allah, is nada rabbahu nida'an khafiyya. Qala rabbi inni wahna al-azmu minni. You know how he starts his prayer for a child? How does he start? My bones are turning to dust. He's trying to talk about how old he is. Right? He's, he's oh Allah, my bones are disintegrating. 
And my hair is like so white, it looks like it's on fire. Basically, he's saying, oh, Allah, I am old. I want a child, but I'm old. He, subhanAllah, man, he is asking for something. He hasn't even said the words yet. If that's not emotional, you know, sometimes you want something, you can't even say it. You're so, you're so emotional about it, you can't even utter it because you're so hurt by it. And this is why I tell people, don't let your tongue stop your du'a because if you can't find the words, your heart can still call to Allah. You don't have to, if you can't find the word, some of us just aren't good with words, right? I've seen that, unfortunately. <laughs> I've done a lot of nikahs, okay? I've seen it. He's like, I just want to thank you, dude, for like letting me marry your daughter, dude. He's like, all right, I'm going to leave quickly before, before I see too much. Okay, sometimes you're not good with words and your heart can still call upon Allah. And that's why he says what? Inni Oh Allah, you've never let me hang. When I make dua to you, you've never made me regret it. My duas have always been answered. So if you find one night or one moment that their opportunity of asking Allah has opened, and this isn't like some mystical moment, you're not going to get a notification from Jibreel on your iPhone like, it's just going to be something you feel. Maybe you're sitting there and you are waiting for something and there's nothing to do and you've already scrolled and seen too much and you're like, you know what? And maybe in that moment you just say, huh, I remember we were talking about dua. That's it. That's your cue. What does it take? You don't have to be in the front row of the masjid. It doesn't have to be the 27th night. You can sit. In fact, du'a is one of the few worships, acts of worship that you don't even need to be in a state of wudu. Obviously, it's nice to be, but you don't have to be. You could be sitting, waiting for your pickup order at Dave's, and you could just say to yourself, you know what, I want to make du'a. And actually, Imam Ghazali says this. He says, make du'a when you're hungry physically, because your weakness will be inspiring to your du'a. People don't, why do you think it's sunnah and it's most answered to make dua before Maghrib, not after Maghrib in Ramadan? Because before Maghrib is like the peak of your hunger and thirst. After Maghrib is like, you know, <laughs> you're swimming in samosas. And you, you're like, my duas have all been answered, right? There's nothing to ask for at this point. I have samosas, you know, and mango lassi, so I'm good. Now the next thing with du'a is when you make du'a, don't be rude. You can be informal. You can, be, you can ask Allah and you can be open. You can open your heart and you can spill it to Allah. I mean, I mean, basically, he's like, oh, Allah, I'm complaining to you about everybody. He's upset. He's hurt. But you can't be rude. To who? To Allah. Ibn Atta'illah, he says, if you experience delay in giving, meaning if Allah doesn't give you what you want, He says, let that not be a cause for you to stop praying. Because, He says, Allah will give you fi al-waqt al-ladhi yurid. Allah will give you in the time that He wants. La fil-waqt al-ladhi turid. He will give you in the time that he wants, not in the time you want. You know, many times you and I want something and it's still not ripe yet. It's still green. It's like when my kids didn't understand the concept of a ripe banana versus an unripe banana. They were like, Bob, I want a banana. I'm like, it's not going to be good. They're like, give me the banana. And who am I to say no to a demand like that? And sometimes, and I'll tell you this, sometimes as a parent, it's fun because you're like, okay, <laughs> here, have this banana that's bright green. Cut it up. They're like, this doesn't smell right. I'm like, eat it. You made me open it. Eat it. They eat it. They're like, this tastes like deodorant. I'm like, how do you know? Never mind, right? 
<laughs> but you know what? It just takes one bite. It just takes one bite for them to realize that, you know what? Maybe my timing isn't always right. And maybe what I want is not always on the right time. And then what? They learn that everything requires its timing. The one that Allah wants, not the one that you want. And he even says, he says, ضَمِنَ لَكَ الْإِجَابَةَ فِيمَا يَخْتَارُهُ لَكَ وَلَا فِي تَخْتَارُهُ لِنَفْسِكَ And not only the timing, but don't also say that I'm going to get exactly, not only when I want, but what I want too. Ibn Atta'illah says, your dua is opening the door and you should say, oh Allah, this is what I'm requesting. And oh Allah, grant me the best in something at the best time. Not, oh Allah, if they're good for me, let them marry me. And if they're not, make them good for me. It's, oh Allah, I trust you more than I trust myself. And I want you to give me, I don't want to give it to myself. Okay? And the third thing with dua is that you can't be a stranger and make dua effectively. You have to be a regular. You have to know Allah and be with Allah all the time. The strongest du'as comes from the one who are very familiar with Allah. You can't speak to somebody comfortably if you don't speak to them regularly. When you meet someone for the first time, it's the most formal. Then the more you talk to them, the more you become comfortable with them. There's a famous story of Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, rahimahullah, is a great scholar in our tradition, and the story of him and the baker. Many of you have probably heard it before. It's a beautiful story. Basically, Imam Ahmed was somebody who was well-known, very famous, had thousands and thousands of students. So he begins traveling one day, and he reaches a town at night, and he decides, you know what, I need a place to sleep. I'm going to go sleep in the masjid. And so he goes into the masjid, and he lays down to sleep, and the guard comes in and says, hey, this isn't a place to sleep. Get up. It's the masjid. It's the house of Allah. Get out. Now at this point, this is basically like somebody like Mufti Mank taking a nap at Qalam and somebody kicking Mufti Mank out. I would fire that person immediately. <laughs> Mufti Mank can sleep wherever he likes in this building, right? Okay, someone very well known. But Imam Ahmed, at that point, the person doesn't recognize him. There's no internet, there's no YouTube, he doesn't know what he looks like. He's just like this name, this faceless figure. So at the time, Imam Ahmed... He doesn't say like, okay, hold on. Do you know who I am? You, you look who you're talking to. He doesn't do that. He goes, okay. So then he goes out in the courtyard of the masjid, the parking lot, and he lays down under a tree there. The guard comes and says, hey, I said the whole place is closed. Get out. And he drags him to the middle of the street. Imam Ahmed is sitting there. And he's like, what should I do? And he looks and he sees because late at night, the only people that are awake early in the morning, I should say, from like the trades are the bakeries. They're baking things and getting them ready for the early morning. So he sees this baker and they make eye contact and the baker is very nice and he calls and says, hey, come stay with me. You can stay in my shop, please. So he introduces him, gets him in and Imam Ahmed notices something about this guy. He notices that he's constantly in a state of dhikr. Like everything he's doing, Pouring the water, pouring the flour, pouring the salt, pouring all of these things, right? Mixing the dough, kneading the dough, letting it rest. He's making dhikr the whole time. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Astaghfirullah. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad. Just constantly, right? By the way, this is not like superhero stuff. I've seen this before. One of my teachers, between reading the, or between commenting on the book, he would just make azkar. Someone would be reading and he's like, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha, over and over again. I've been in cab, cabs in, in the Muslim countries, cab drivers making adhkar constantly. So Imam Ahmed, he notices this. He says, oh, that's interesting. And then he dozes off and he wakes up and the guy is still making adhkar. So Imam Ahmed, of course, he's a scholar. So he's like, you know what? This guy is like a special guy. So he goes to him and he says, can I ask you something? And he says, what? And he says, You've been making adhkar like this whole time. Do you do this normally? And the baker says, uh, yeah, I thought everybody like did. I thought this was normal. Just remembering Allah. 
Imam Ahmed's kind of like, no, it's <laughs> definitely not normal. I just got kicked out of the masjid by the security guard. He was not making afkar, right? So, and then he asks him, he goes, can you tell me about some things? Because for somebody like this, definitely some special things are happening for them. So he goes, what have you found is the benefit of this practice? Have you found some fruits of this? And he said, yes. He goes, I have found that, and he's not bragging, he's just speaking one-to-one. He doesn't even know who Imam Ahmed is. He just thinks he's a random stranger who needs a place to stay. He goes, I found that Allah, I make dua, and he never, ever does not answer it. He always answers my prayers. And Imam Ahmed goes, Ajib. Your du'as are answered always? He goes, Wallahi, every single one. And then he pauses and he goes, except for one. And Imam Ahmed goes, what? What did you pray for that you didn't get? And the baker says, I've made du'a for a long time that I get to meet this very well-known and very pious scholar named Imam Ahmed. And he goes, for some reason, that du'a hasn't been answered yet. Imam Ahmed starts crying. And he says, the guy's like, why are you crying? He said, you are so connected to Allah that because of your dua, Allah literally dragged me to your doorstep so that your dua could be answered. Like I couldn't control it. He's like, I was in a building and this guy came and pulled me and dragged me into the middle of the street. And that was Allah answering your dua because you are so close to him. A person who makes dua to Allah cannot be a stranger. If you want your duas to be accepted and accepted beautifully and with that quickness that we talked about, you have to know Allah. And to know Him is to remember Him in all situations. The two, the second thing that you need to understand in order to have your duas be strong is He says, and I'll leave you with this. He says this line again in the commentary, مَا طَلَبَ لَكَ شَيْءٌ مِثْلُ الْإِطْرَارِ وَلَا أَسْرَعَ بِالْمَوَاهِبِ إِلَيْكَ مِثْلُ الْذِلَّةِ وَالْإِفْتِخَارِ He says, so the first step is that you have to what? Be familiar with Allah. Call upon Allah. Be comfortable talking to Allah. The second thing is, you cannot act like you don't need anything. You know, sometimes like when we, we don't want to, we pretend like we don't need it. Hey, you got a trip today? Yeah. What time's your flight? Five. You need to ride to the airport? No, nah, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. You sure? Yeah. I don't, maybe. I don't know. I was going to call an Uber. Ubers are expensive. Yeah, they are. I could take you. No, I don't want to bother you. Unless you're free. <laughs> it's like taking a gift is so hard. Like we don't want to show any vulnerability. And the reason I'm so good at that scenario is because I do this all the time. Why do people carry in all the groceries by themselves? Why do people, hey, what can I bring over for dinner? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Don't bring anything. If you bring something, I'm kicking you out. Don't feel so scared to be vulnerable, right? And, and I'll tell you something, subhanAllah. That vulnerability, if you refuse to be vulnerable with people, and I'm not, by the way, also, don't be vulnerable with everybody, okay? Nobody likes a crybaby. So be vulnerable with the right people in the right time. Like, be appropriately vulnerable, okay? Be vulnerable not on TikTok. Be vulnerable with your close family and friends. Don't be afraid to open up to people that love you and make dua for you. How do you know someone loves you? They make dua for you. They check up on you. Those are people that you can be open with. And if you can be open with them, you can be open with Allah. He says, nothing. Nothing pleads for you on your behalf, like begs for you on your behalf, except for extreme need. And nothing expedites the gifts for you other than being low and displaying your need. Sometimes we, we behave in such a way with people that we cannot turn the switch and be needy to Allah. We have to work on being needy to Allah and begging Allah. You know, you'll hear statements in du'as where people say, Oh Allah, nobody can do this except for you. Nobody can help me except for you. That is the way that people make this into a reality. 
I'll give you four tips for making dua. Are you ready? And then we're going to go for Isha. Four tips. Number one, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Number one, if you want your du'as to be successful and full and open and meaningful, number one, begin your du'as by appreciating Allah. There's four steps to a du'a. Number one, appreciation. Thank Allah for everything. Go through your brain. What did Allah give me? Number two, apologize to Allah. What are your greatest regrets? Talk to him about the mistakes you've made. Apologize. Right? Number three, what are your greatest hopes? What are the things that you desperately need? And number four, what are your greatest fears? All of these four emotional categories, your greatest thanks, your greatest regrets, your greatest hopes and fears, are all taken from the du'as of the prophets in the Qur'an. This is how they spoke to Allah. They thanked Him. They owned up for things that they did, like Yunus salam and the whale. They spoke about their greatest hopes to Allah. And then they talked about their greatest fears. These are the four things that if you center your du'as around these things, you will never ever run out of du'a. You will run out of time before you run out of du'a. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept our du'as on our behalf. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us those who call upon Him. We ask, us those, we ask Allah to make us those who call upon Him sincerely with hearts that are yearning and needy. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept from us all of our prayers, all of our supplications, even the ones that we cannot articulate with our words. We ask you, O oh Allah, to listen to the call of our hearts. O oh Allah, we ask you to bring us closer to you gently. O oh Allah, we ask you to take care of our needs, Ya Allah, and our wants, Ya Allah. O oh Allah, we ask you to protect us from our fears, Ya Allah, and to forgive us for our, our, our shortcomings, Ya Allah. O oh Allah, we ask you on this night, gather together as an ummah, O oh Allah, that you uplift the oppression and the pain and the grief and the sadness and the difficulty and the destruction from the ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Ya Allah. Whether that be in Gaza, Ya Allah. Whether that be in greater Palestine, Ya Allah. Whether that be in Sudan or Somalia, Ya Allah. Whether that be in Afghanistan, Ya Allah. Or with the Uyghur population, Ya Allah, in China, Ya Allah. Or in Congo, Ya Allah. Or anywhere, Ya Allah, we ask you, O Allah, to uplift the pain and the difficulty and the tragedy, Ya Allah, from the Ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu And O oh Allah, for those that have been killed, Ya Allah, we ask you to accept them as martyrs. O oh Allah, for those that have had their lives ruined by injury or sickness, O oh Allah, we ask you to give them shifa and to give them grace in their life, Ya Allah. O oh Allah, we ask you to allow us to be relief for them. And we ask you, O oh Allah, to allow us to be those who never forget them in our prayers. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik, nashadu an la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.